Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This, of course, is your host, DJ Louis XIV, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever it is blaring through your headphones or iPhone speaker at this very moment. That really helps us get in front of more people. We are, of course, on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I am at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. We have merch at poppantheonpod.com. And of course, join our Patreon for at least three bonus episodes of the show per month and so many other perks at patreon.com slash poppantheon. All right, so this week we are kicking off a double header that is about Gwen Stefani, but of course we are going to be covering in this episode her years with her very influential and important band, No Doubt in the 90s and early 2000s. And then next week, we are going to be biting into Gwen's solo turn as one of the definitive dance pop divas of the mid-2000s. So this was such a fun couple of episodes to put together for you guys. I really hope you enjoy the series. I know this has been heavily fan-demanded. People want the Gwen content, and we are coming through with the Gwen content. And it was incredibly amazing to put this work together, to put this episode together, to put both these episodes together. Obviously, No Doubt and Gwen were huge for me at various phases in my time growing up. So this was amazing to look back at. Fascinating group, fascinating artists, a lot of contradictions, a lot of great stuff, a lot of weird stuff. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy this series. Without further ado, here is part one of our Gwen Stefani series on No Doubt. Here it is. For a band with this name, No Doubt is laden with ambiguities. They started as a local SoCal ska band led by some men, then became a local SoCal ska band led by a woman, then became the biggest pop rock band in the world almost as a fluke, then just a few years later morphed into an omnivorous, uber-produced, glossy pop entity that could barely be called a band at all. They never really had a sound per se, and while they dropped some of the best singles of the 90s and early aughts, they never produced a truly definitive classic album, and please do not come for me, have you? You listen to Tragic Kingdom in full lately? Through one lens, they were a tight-playing outfit of uber-talented and genuinely fascinating members, each of whom played a key role in the greater whole. And yet, through another, they functioned primarily as the launching pad for one of the most important big tent dance pop stars of her generation. A woman who somehow both defined mid-90s pop feminism while also opining about how that mantle was denying her the label she truly wanted, traditional housewife. Whatever the case, though, no doubt in all their polyglot, amorphous style and presentation came to define a period of pop music, halfway between grunge and the teen pop boom, and with superstar lead singer Gwen Stefani at the helm, punk rock on bottom and mid-century blonde bombshell on top, put a face on the walking contradictions of an entire pop cultural era with some pretty unforgettable tunes. The story of No Doubt begins in a Dairy Queen in Anaheim, California in the late 80s when two teenage employees, Eric Stefani and John Spence, started talking about getting a group of local kids together to jam in Eric's parents' garage. With Eric on keyboard and John taking on lead vocals, the pair recruited Eric's sister Gwen for backup vocals and soon pulled in Tony Canal on bass. They called themselves No Doubt, a catchphrase of Spence's. The group started out playing local shows around Orange County, which had a burgeoning ska scene at the time. In the early years, members came and went. Though the best-known configuration had just four members, in total, 20 different people have been in No Doubt. 
Tony and Gwen started dating shortly after the band formed, though they initially kept their romance a secret from their bandmates. In 1987, a year after the band was formed, lead singer John died by suicide. The group disbanded after losing him, but soon reformed with Gwen donning what would become her signature Betty Boop warble vocal effect, eventually filling in as the new lead singer. Now with a front woman who had movie star beauty and megawatt X Factor, the band became locally known for their high-energy live shows featuring tons of moshing and crowd surfing, and developed a following in Southern California. They eventually caught the attention of Interscope Records and inked a deal in 1990. Their self-titled debut, a borderline ridiculous theatrical and nearly hookless ska album, was released in the spring of 1992. No doubt feel-good, goofy early songs were at odds with the self-serious grunge craze sweeping America in the early 90s, and the album failed to connect, selling just 30,000 copies. Interscope pulled its support, forcing No Doubt to self-finance the music video for the album's only single, the punk meets ragtime ditty, Trapped in a Box. In 1993, No Doubt began work on their sophomore album, but amidst struggles with Interscope, founding member and primary songwriter Eric Stefani left the band to become an animator on The Simpsons. Around the same time, Tony and Gwen split, causing further complications, but also providing fodder for what would become many of the band's breakthrough hits. No Doubt found a home for their second album at the California indie label Trauma Records, which sub-licensed their deal and released 1995's The Beacon Street Collection, named after the home in Anaheim where they lived and recorded songs. The album, which was slicker and more stylistically varied than its predecessor, also performed better, selling 100,000 copies and recapturing Interscope's attention. But it was the shift in the band's dynamics and its lyrics that shot them into the pop stratosphere. Though Tony, Tom, and Eric all contributed to songwriting, Gwen emerged as No Doubt's key lyricist after Eric left the band, giving No Doubt's third record, 1995's Tragic Kingdom, a distinctive female point of view. Producer Matthew Wilder was also brought on to help funnel the group's raw energy into ska, punk, rock slammers with absolutely monster pop hooks. The lead single, the pop-punk heat rock Just a Girl, which deployed Gwen's sarcastic Cupid doll chirp to great effect, became an instant pop feminist anthem and provided No Doubt with their first entry on the Billboard charts, peaking at number 23 on the Hot 100 and going double platinum. Its accompanying video also introduced viewers to Gwen's now iconic look. The cherry red lipstick, a white cropped tank top, perfectly coiffed platinum blonde hair, and a bindi which she had started wearing while dating Tony, whose parents are originally from India. India. Tragic Kingdom only gained steam from there, with second single Spiderwebs put into heavy rotation on both alternative and pop radio, and earning no doubt their second platinum single. The band went on to release seven singles total from Tragic Kingdom, which climbed to the top of the Billboard 200 and spent nine consecutive weeks at number one, eventually earning diamond certification and selling 16 million copies worldwide. It is perhaps best remembered, though, for the band's signature hit, a triple platinum power ballad that detailed Tony and Gwen's split called Don't Speak, which essentially owned the world and the radio for all of 1996. Between an exhaustive two and a half year tour in support of Tragic Kingdom, a bout of writer's block which would come to define much of Gwen Stefani's career both with No Doubt and on her own, label drama, 
and Gwen's new relationship with Bush frontman Gavin Rossdale no doubt took five years to follow up Tragic Kingdom. The band returned in 2000 with Return of Saturn, a contemplative dialed back set of songs that found Gwen looking back on old relationships and pining for domesticity with Rossdale. On its best performing single, Simple Kind of Life, Gwen sang about her desire to leave pop stardom behind, settle down, and have a family. The album sold more than a million copies, but was a huge commercial come down from the highs of Tragic Kingdom. After Saturn, no doubt traveled to Jamaica to write and record the bulk of their next record, 2001's Rock Steady. Mixing Jamaican dancehall with electro and pop, the album ditched the desire for rock bona fides that defined and also weighed down a lot of the previous album, and instead pulled in disparate collaborators from the pop and dancehall world, from William Orbit, fresh off his collaborations with Madonna, to the Neptunes and Nelly Hooper, to the Jamaican production duo Sly and Robbie. The lead single, Hey Baby, a seductive electronic dancehall number, brought No Doubt back to the top of the charts, peaking at number five. The follow-up, the Another One Bites the Dust nodding Neptune's co-write Hella Good, continued this streak, earning platinum status. And the groovy, reggae-infused Underneath It All, featuring vocals from dancehall legend Lady Saw, became the band's highest-charting U.S. single ever, with a peak of number three on the Hot 100, and won No Doubt their first Grammy. After Rocksteady, No Doubt released a Greatest Hits album in 2003, which featured their top 10 cover of Talk Talk's It's My Life, before going on hiatus as Gwen ventured into an extraordinarily successful solo career, which will be covered in next week's episode. The band returned with one final album in 2012, Push and Shove, which failed to connect beyond their core audience. They scored one final top 40 entry with Settle Down, but the song quickly fizzled. No Doubt's final single, Looking Hot, missed the charts and was mired in controversy for its video's depiction of indigenous peoples. No Doubt has not toured since 2012, but Gwen played a bounty of the group's hits during her Vegas residency from 2018 through 2021. No Doubt has four platinum albums and one gold album, and four platinum singles and five gold singles. They have received two Grammy Awards, five VMA Awards, two ASCAP Pop Music Awards, a Billboard Music Video Award, two VH1 Vogue Fashion Awards, a Teen Choice Award, and a Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Award. Here with me to discuss the career and legacy of No Doubt is writer and host of the Ant Introducing podcast, Molly Mary O'Brien. Okay, so I'm here with writer and the host of the Ant Introducing podcast, Molly Mary O'Brien. Molly, welcome to the main feed. I know we've had you before on the Patreon, so our patrons have been lucky to experience your brilliance before. <laughs> welcome to the main feed of Pop Pantheon. Thank you so much. I can't believe I made it. Oh, I made it to the main feed. This was inevitable. And frankly, <laughs> the stars just aligned for the perfect Molly episode of the show. So we're here today to kick off a double header that we're doing about Gwen Stefani but we're breaking it up into the No Doubt years and then her solo years. I know that you probably share this with me. Gwen was a gigantic part of my childhood. She was a figure that represented like the coolest aspects of what it meant to be a pop star. She represented some weird ideas of feminist ideals, I think, in some ways, mm -hmm. especially in contrast to some of the other mainstreamy pop stars that she was not pitted against, but maybe served 
as a counter-programming to like Britney mm-hmm. and Jennifer Lopez and a lot of the other teen pop acts, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the great journeys of my life has been kind of having that dream of Gwen Stefani weirdly shattered for me in watching how she's turned out in her middle age. She's kind of turned into a trad wife, as Russ has deemed her in the past. And she's married to this country dude and drives tractors and doesn't seem that interested in being a pop star anymore. Anyway, so that was a big dissonance for me Mm -hmm. through a lot of the last five, 10 years even. But going back through this work to prep for this episode, I kind of was kicking myself because it's not actually that surprising. I feel like when you go back and look at No Doubt's work and you kind of see that through a lot of this, both in the music itself and in the way that she presented herself, this contrast between this sort of 90s pop feminism and then sort of this desire to be traditional and kind of ambivalence about being a pop star, ambivalence about being even like a working woman (laughs) seems to run through a lot of No Doubt's work. And so it solved some mysteries for me. I wonder how much that whole thing resonates with you and like what your take is on the journey of Gwen Stefani through your fandom and life. Yeah, I was born in 89. So right around the time when I was becoming a conscious music listening human being, Tragic Kingdom was huge. And I think the single that hit first for me was Don't Speak. Right. I remember seeing the music video even before I was allowed. <laughs> it broke containment of MTV because I famously was not allowed to watch MTV until I turned 13. Oh, wow. Which, thanks parents, <laughs> what have you done? I just turned into a pop podcaster. Literally, it's like when parents are like, you can't have sugar and then someone becomes a fucking sugar junkie and gets diabetes. Yeah, Yeah, I still think watching music videos all night is a fun activity. So what are we all doing here? Mm. But yeah, so I feel like similarly, I grew up with the vision of Gwen Stefani as a female rock star at a time when there weren't necessarily a ton of them. And then, yeah, was it Anne Helen Peterson had a BuzzFeed profile of Gwen Stefani kind of profiling her entire career Mm -hmm. and saying it's actually not shocking that she has turned out to be a Blake (laughs) Shelton trad wife. (laughs) At the end of the day, she grew up in like a conservative Orange County. Do you know how powerful the energy of Republican OC is? Mm -hmm. That's really hard to get out of at the end of the day. It's true. It's a cultural force. Yeah. It reminded me when COVID happened and there was this viral video of a guy on hunting Beach, the boardwalk, trying to get people to wear masks, and they just wouldn't do it. They were acting like he's crazy, and he's just walking around being like, Hey guys, do you want a mask? And they're like, Absolutely not. What are you talking about? Yeah. Anyway, that's the vibe that Gwen Stefani was born in, so it shouldn't be necessarily surprising that a lot of her songs are about, you know what? I wish my birth control would fail and that I wouldn't have to do this anymore. I didn't realize this. The cover of Return of Saturn literally has a gigantic birth control packet in the background of it. Oh, I totally missed that. It's hard to tell. So she's been obsessed with this having it all. Can you have a career and be creative and then also want to pop out kids? Mm. So it was funny to look back on it through that BuzzFeed piece, but then listening to all these albums again, because I hadn't listened to these albums in a while and the themes are strong. They are. They are. And the thing that was so interesting to me too is that such a huge aspect of Gwen and Gwen as front woman of this band was the presentational element. Mm -hmm. The way that she looked. The way that she was the coolest star 
in my mind, I remember looking at her and thinking, just cool factor. Yeah. That was the thing that always sort of penetrated through all of it to me was I just think that she has incredible taste. I want to look like her. It's very singular. But in looking at it now, beyond just listening to Simple Kind of Girl and going, duh, mm -hmm. the way she looked was this weird balance between traditional mid-century American femininity and then masculine or more androgynous clothing presentations, sartorial choices, whatever. It's almost like she's Marilyn Monroe on the top and then on the bottom, she's some sort of punk rocker. Yeah. It's this really interesting visual representation of what we're talking about. And a lot of the music, I think, and a lot of the persona that she develops through these records is using the QP baby doll voice, the sort of voice of the disempowered female, mm -hmm. the voice of the sexy baby woman <laughs> to create commentary on the skewed gender power dynamics. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting because that wasn't just coming from this middle finger punk rock, fuck the patriarchy vibe that maybe is how it got perceived at the time, but actually was speaking more to like a true internal muddiness inside of herself about A, maybe how she was representing herself, but also like how people mm -hmm. wanted to see her. That felt like a big part of the pressure that created a lot of interesting conflict in the work, which was because if you were a pop fan in that particular moment, we were dealing with such a hyper-feminized version of female presentation and sexuality through the Britneys and Janet and a lot of people of this era. And then you had someone like Gwen, who was somewhere between Courtney Love and Britney Spears, right? Yeah. But at the same time, I think if you were coming at it from the pop lens, you saw her as the iconoclast against those things. But I don't know if she totally saw herself that way. Yeah. And I think even as we get into her more mainstream pop career, I think that was almost a moment where she was like, I also want to be a traditionally sexy female presenting pop girly. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting commentary and also what feminism was in 1996. That was the other part of it that was so interesting. <laughs> like think it's just a girl. Yeah. What feminism was and then the attitude toward cultural appropriation was then versus now. <laughs> <laughs> Our queen of borrowing, let's just say. Yeah, it's funny. I was reading up on some like No Doubt and Gwen Stefani profiles to kind of brush up on my lore. And I think it was when Gwen was maybe just about to go solo and she made a joke about, obviously this is this is not No Doubt, this is for the solo time, but yeah. when she did Love Angel Music Baby, she made some joke about, I thought about calling the album, it was yours and now it's mm. mine. She was kind of loose <laughs> on the mic for press sometimes. She seemed to not necessarily have as much of a filter as I would argue pop girls do now. <laughs> no. It is definitely interesting to see the way that she can traverse genre. And this is the other thing that I guess maybe is worth sort of saying up top here is was the package of rock band even something that ultimately made sense for her? You know, that was one thing that yeah. I think is interesting in thinking about the sort of no doubt years versus the solo years is that once you get beyond Tragic Kingdom being functionally like a ska punk rock pop album or whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. once we get beyond that, there's sort of a sense sometimes through no doubt's music that I think is then borne out by the way she approached her solo career, which was the idea of being this rock band and having to operate in that way kind of confined her in ways that didn't totally make sense. And I think it'll be fascinating when we talk about Return of Saturn, what's good and what works about that album, but maybe why that record wasn't particularly huge or well-received as yeah. packaging for Gwen Stefani. And then the sort of pivot out 
out and into like a more expansive and pop driven sound on the third record that set up the solo albums. In a way, Tragic Kingdom setting No Doubt up as some sort of traditional rock band in any sort of way was a fluke yeah. more than an actual reality. That was another thing that I was sort of thinking about through this. Yeah, it's the Trojan horse. Yes. Well, you know what? That might be unfair. Those boys worked hard. <laughs> the boys worked hard. I mean more as like a vehicle for Gwen. Yeah. I think the more Gwen is able to sort of unshackle herself from the confines of what it means to be a rock front woman, the more she makes sense in some ways. You know what I mean? Totally. And it's funny, the first No Doubt song that I was aware of was Don't Speak, which obviously had that video where the band is upset that they're being kind of pushed out. She's getting on magazine covers by herself and they're looking pissed. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they maybe did it as a bit. And then it's crazy how immediately after them getting really famous, the gravitational pull away with Gwen Stefani just happened. Because if you look at those guys, if they were in a band by themselves, they would still seem like an interesting band. True. But then you have Gwen Stefani as the front woman and it's kind of like how do you get out from under that especially when she's singing songs about how annoyed she is that you broke her heart and didn't want to marry her totally <laughs> that's kind of brutal it is i guess that's maybe the last thing we should say before we get into it is the star quality on her is off the chain it's crazy that's really the thing more than anything because she's not exactly the greatest songwriter of all time she's not the greatest singer of all time mm -hmm. it's that pure x factor yeah the minute you see her even in the pre-fame era like i was watching interviews of them when they were just touring college campus and stuff and she is just like fucking you're glued to her she is just fascinating to watch and look at and mm -hmm. she's obviously beautiful and she's so cool she just has it yeah whatever the fuck that is the thing we can <laughs> never really name whatever it yeah. is the x factor like she's got that going on super super hardcore yeah. through all of this and that feels like really important groundwork for understanding this kind of enigmatic <laughs> figure in pop i think yeah which makes it even crazier that she's like maybe i'll just leave it all and become a housewife i'm like you gwen stefani <laughs> come on I know. That's like a load of crap, I think. It's very grass is always greener with her, it feels like. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's go back and just very broadly speaking, can we just get some light background on the band, on No Doubt, mm -hmm. on how this band came together, and then maybe just a little bit of a focus on Gwen in particular and how she ends up being part of this and whatever the journey is here, just in broad strokes. Yeah. The other weird thing about this band is that it wasn't even Gwen's leading band to begin with. It was her brother, Eric. Right. The two of them are from what sounds like a pretty normal middle class family. And Gwen Stefani is always talking about that in interviews that she's like Catholic upbringing, very moral, nothing weird about it. But her parents do both play music. Her dad played the guitar. Her mom played the auto harp. Mm. And they're really into folk music. So there is a seed of the creativity there. But yeah, her brother's really the ringleader of this whole thing and even got her into ska to begin with because he brought home a Madness record. Madness, a British band that was part of the second wave of ska. And Gwen Stefani, she said, we thought we were cool underground kids who found this weird music from England. <laughs> I love that. The 80s and 90s were so crazy because pre-internet, it's hard for me to wrap my head around because I more or less grew up concurrent with the idea that you could get music at any time from anywhere yeah. and information at any time from anywhere. Yeah. But the idea that you would crate dig and be like, look what I found. There's this thing called ska that's from England. That's crazy. 
crazy. Right. Can you talk a little bit about what ska is? Yeah. So ska is basically, as a genre, it's a precursor to reggae. It's described in waves. Mm -hmm. So the first wave is Jamaica in the 60s. And that comes from the mutation of American R&B and then Caribbean music like Calypso. Mm. It's characterized by upbeat guitar, the... That's more or less ska. Yeah. It's funny to think of it as something that could be appropriated when, it, as a style, it makes sense that it has held on through the years because it doesn't take much to write a ska song in that sense. That was the first wave. The second wave is Britain in the late 1970s, and that's bands like Madness, The Specials, mixing ska with punk so it's a little bit harder edged, and that's the stuff that Gwen Stefani and her brother got into. This And then there was a third wave of it in the late 80s and early 90s, which was international, but California had kind of a special pocket of it with bands like No Doubt, Mighty Mighty Boston's, they're in Boston, Fishbone, Real Big Fish, Sublime. And now I would argue there's a fourth wave happening of ska. Oh. There's still like young bands who are playing ska pop punk and it's becoming a thing. There's like a guy named Jer who does ska covers of popular songs. So ska's happening, but I can understand why it was such a potent resource source for Gwen and Eric Stefani because it's an exciting sound. Yes. There's a whimsy to it. There's almost like a theatricality to it. Yes. Also, there's very particular dances that go with it. There's like a moshing element to it. Mm -hmm. One thing we'll get into is no doubt rising up against the backdrop of grunge, which kind of feels like this counterpoint to ska in so many ways. It's yeah. dark and brooding and very serious. No trombones to be found in grunge. Right. There's a silliness factor to Scott. There's a whimsy to it. There's a lightness. There's a joy and lots of different instruments. There's horns and there's guitar. There's like all kinds of stuff going on. And it's so funny to think about the different waves because I just remember when I was in middle school, so I guess this would have been during the third wave, we saw ska as cool and edgy, but I think that what's important maybe to understand about the wave that Gwen and Eric are picking up on is that I don't think it was necessarily seen as the cool thing, right? Yeah, I think that's the signature thing about ska is that the barrier to entry in terms of authenticity and like being tough, things that you would normally think about in terms of punk rock, right. being a badass and kicking people's <laughs> ass. Ska is just a much friendly genre. Yeah, fun-loving. Yeah, you don't need the cred, I think. I interviewed someone who runs a ska punk label right now, and he basically said the thing that's nice about ska is that it's kind of like you join the club if you're in the club. Yeah. If you're down, you're down. No one's gatekeeping ska. Yeah. Ska is there for you if you wanted to be mm. there. But yeah, when Gwen and Eric Stefani were getting into it, not a cool genre, but it makes sense that it is a California genre. I'm sure you've seen every single movie from the 90s where they stuck Mighty Mighty Boston's in there is the party band of course clueless yeah it's the perfect music it's not grunge it's not dark it's gonna keep the mood up for when you need a dance scene for Cher to realize <laughs> that her boyfriend's actually gay Cher I have a question what do you think I should do with this thing should I um like tie it around or put it over my shoulder tie it around your waist ready to slide 
And I think like another important element of it, and this speaks to maybe the party element of it, is that there's elements of like big band jazz in it. There's those big yeah. horns. There is these almost classical American style elements to it that are incorporated in with more modern rock elements that make it into this virtuosic type playing between many sections. No doubt in its inception had like nine members in it because they had like a full ass horn section and that was what you needed as a ska band. All right, so we're in the late 80s. Yeah. Eric, Gwen's older brother, is like thinking of starting this band based around his interest in ska. How does No Doubt form in the late 80s? Gwen and Eric and this guy John Spence are working together at Dairy Queen, which is classic Americana. Literally. And also like perfect of this era. Perfect of this era. Eric kind of forms this ska collective. Tony Canal, who ends up becoming their bassist, is at their first show. Mm -hmm. So he's there on the early side and is like, this is awesome. I would like to join. And then this original larger format band forms. They start gigging around in Anaheim and Southern California, developing somewhat of a following. It seems like they're about to play for record label scouts and shoot for the moon. And then John Spence, who his signature phrase, no doubt, in response to anyone asking him any questions, <laughs> gave the band its name, ends up dying by suicide basically right before they're starting to try to take things to the next level. Wow. And that scatters the initial larger group. They disband for a while. They're basically just like, I don't know how we're supposed to go on in this particular way. Then they decide, let's give it another try. Mm -hmm. This is what he would have wanted. And a lot of people get kind of swapped in and out. At this point, Tony's still there. Gwen's still there. Eric's still there. And Gwen is backing vocals. Gwen's doing backing. Yes, backing vocals. And Eric is band leader and lead songwriter, although they're all contributing to songwriting. Mm -hmm. And then Tom Dumont comes in from a metal band called Rising. Mm -hmm. And Adrian Young comes in. He's the drummer. He replaces their old drummer. He lies about how long he has played. <laughs> I believe he's like 18 and he's like, I've played for nine years. And he's like, I've actually only played for like a year and a half. Mm. But more proof that you should sometimes lie to try to get a job you want because <laughs> you will maybe end up as the drummer for No Doubt. If you take anything away from this episode, it's Molly's endorsement of lying to get jobs. Yeah. A little casual <laughs> fibbing never hurt anybody. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. <laughs> That's how the original lineup of No Doubt Forms with Eric still at this point by the early 90s in the lead mm -hmm. role. It's not obvious to everybody at this point that Gwen is going to step in here and become the front person of this band, right? Yeah. Do you know how that ends up happening exactly? What it sounds like, at least in terms of getting more songwriting airtime, yeah. is that basically between recording their first album and recording their kind of inter-album of rarities that she takes a bigger role songwriting. Mm -hmm. I saw there's one guy who briefly took on lead vocals and then he left and then it was kind of like, let's get Gwen in there. Yeah. I don't know what was the official impetus of her becoming the front woman though. Right. So in the early 90s, Gwen ends up taking on a front woman role. I think one interesting thing in thinking about their relationship to the ska movement and what inspired Gwen's really unique vocal style, which I definitely want to spend some time talking about because I think it's very singular. And yeah. one of the things that makes No Doubt interesting and makes Gwen like a superstar is I was reading Jill Mape's review of Tragic Kingdom in Pitchfork and she pointed out this ska band from the 70s and I think like through the mid 80s, I think they were called Selector. Mm -hmm. And there was this lead singer named Pauline Black she mixed this hyper feminine sort of chirpy thing with this operatic warble. Mm -hmm. I'll put my baby, 
Gwen said that when she began singing lead vocals in No Doubt, she essentially just started copying this woman, which is so interesting to me. Uh-huh. And Gwen, to her credit, again, a borrower of the highest order, she did go on to say, listen, I stole this girly's entire vibe. That is so 90s to just be like, if I give credit, it's not stealing. It's an homage, as it were. A hundred percent. And she'll say the same thing about Harajuku street clothing yeah. and about everything else that she ends up doing in the future that you're just like, okay, girl, sure. <laughs> it's very rich, out of touch white lady being like, I'm just paying tribute because I'm wearing a headdress at Coachella. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we've got Gwen, Tony, Tom, and Adrian. And that's the sort of canonical lineup by the time we reach the early 90s. So can we talk about how they end up getting their record deal and what this first record, this self-titled record that comes out in 1992, how that comes together and what that record is like? Yes. I need to shout out that Gwen and Tony did start dating in the late 80s. Yes, this is important. Very important for their songwriting material and just for the dynamic of the band. Yes. You know what's funny? In reading back all of the press I was looking at, I never saw anyone mention Fleetwood Mac. It's classic date your band member break up and then write the best songs about your breakup. With each other. Yeah, and having to play it on (laughs) stage every night. Literally, what the fuck is that like? What is it like (laughs) to write about your breakup with the person you broke up with? That seems like a psychotic exercise, but anyway, it seems to produce good stuff sometimes. (laughs) There was an interview where it was one of the songs on Tragic Kingdom, and she was like, Tony, I need to call you and read you these lyrics that I just wrote (laughs) on the phone. That's so 90s. Yeah. You call your ex on the phone and you're like, I have some lyrics to read. Please. That's wild. There's a lot of scenarios set up in No Doubt songs that are just so incredibly reminiscent of what it was like to be a kid in the 90s to certain things that they hit on where you're just like, wow. Even just like, leave a message and I'll call you back. Okay, girl. Like, (laughs) when? (laughs) They don't do it like that anymore. No. I mean, people still screen their phone calls, I guess, but I don't answer any phone calls because I just assume that they're all from spam companies. And if you leave a message, I will never hear that. I will maybe transcribe it with the Apple transcribing feature, but I will not call you back. Maybe. If it's my mom. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, how No Doubt got signed. I think it's important to highlight them as a live band as kind of their main appeal is that they were so high energy. And yeah, they were having these shows where people were moshing and they were stage diving and crowd surfing. As we see, I think in today's culture, it's not hard to get kids to want to get riled up and run in a circle and hit each other, (laughs) but it's a powerful energy that they harnessed. Absolutely. And I think this is also an important element of understanding how people got record deals and got noticed in the time before the internet. Now we think of this all happening on social media, but this was a very common route to success. Bands playing together, doing live shows and developing local followings over the course of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years before they ever got a breakthrough. It's truly something that I think is hard for us to process in this day and age where you're all just looking for a TikTok hit that will blow up virally universally in one night and then all of a sudden you're yeah. a superstar. No doubt was gestating for 10 years before they really became famous in various forms. So I think that's really interesting and that's what they did. I was a little too young obviously for this exact moment in time but even in the mid to late 90s I remember there were like bands in the New York area that were famous in the New York area but didn't become famous elsewhere and they were known if you lived there. If you were in the Bay Area and you were listening to like hyphy music there was a lot more regionality that would stay regional without ever necessarily breaking out and I think no doubt in this pre-fame period had a significant 
following in Southern California. They would tour around this area and then they would just be basically unknown to everybody else. And that was how a lot of labels would discover bands that they wanted to sign. Yeah. It's hard to imagine being an A&R guy and being like, I will simply go to a lot of shows and see a band that catches my eye and seems like they have a good response and maybe we'll sign them. But that is what happened. It was Tony Ferguson who was doing A&R for Interscope, which I'm sure you've talked about Interscope as a label on this podcast before, but known for being okay with edgier people, Mm -hmm. leaning more Mm -hmm. toward the extremes of pop sounds, not afraid of certain sounds that they think they're going to cross over nationwide. So I think No Doubt is obviously a perfect fit for Interscope. And Tony Ferguson, I think specifically was like, he's British. And so he's familiar with the second wave of ska as a certain culture. And he's like, I can't believe there was so much crowd surfing. Mm. That's not really a thing that you would do at a ska show in England. There's clearly something here. So they signed them to Interscope, which it's crazy to think that you could just be in a band with your sibling and high school friends. And then all of a sudden you are on a major label. It's like the analog form of virality. They're looking to see that there's interest. In this day and age, we would do that by looking at social media engagement and in this other period they're like will people come to your shows around where you live right and i want to just maybe touch even before we talk about the first record just for a second about what gwen looked like and why she was so striking and as a stage presence also what i read is that when tony ferguson brought jimmy Iveen to one of their shows in like 1991 he literally laid eyes on her for one second and said this girl is going to be a star in five years yes he did his wizard proclamation i mean literally though but when you do go look at these shows her her style, everything's all fully there. She looks mm-hmm. incredible. She's got the whole blonde bombshell look up top and she's got totally amazing style. Can you talk a little bit just what she kind of looks like? It's funny that being a blonde and wearing red lipstick, it's just always going to hit, right? <laughs> like <laughs> It's a classic for a reason. And being just like naturally stunning. Like how about that? And being naturally stunning. And then I know you mentioned it before, but she was a little more trad at this time though. Yes, totally. She was doing a little bit more, not quite like a Bobby Soxer thing, but it looked a little more specifically retro, Mm -hmm. I think, like longer skirts. And sometimes she would do her hair kind of more in like a 40s style way. Yes, 100%. It was very mid-century nodding glam. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I feel like it hits again when there's the New York City rock revival in the early 2000s where it's like, if you're the only guy in the room wearing a suit, people are going to notice you. (laughs) And I feel like that's got to be the thing with Gwen Stefani in this era of if I dress kind of like this retro pinup slash 50s school teacher. I will look different than all of these California surfer dweebs who are wearing, I assume, gigantic board shorts or whatever. So it's clever. Her just being her in general and being the front woman of the ska band. You can imagine what the other ska bands adjacent to them looked like. And then you walk in and you see this fucking gorgeous movie star looking girl that's yeah. leading this show that's filled with moshing and stage diving <laughs> and all this shit. You're going to take notice. So Interscope signs them and they released their first record in 1992, which is self-titled. Yeah. Talk to me about what you think about this music. It's really interesting. I hadn't really heard it before until I was prepping for this. I'm curious yeah. how you would describe the music that's happening here. And do we see elements of what their breakthrough music sounds like? And slash, do we not? How do you see this music? It's pretty raw. I feel like the songwriting is not quite there. And we'll get into it later. But in kind of listening to all of this stuff back, I have a theory of no doubt basically being a singles band Mm -hmm. that then backs it up with some pretty decent album tracks. Mm -hmm. But this didn't really synthesize in any way, which I think maybe one of the closest analogs to the no doubt self-titled debut is early Red Hot Chili Peppers, which they were breaking around the same time. And this idea of being kind of like funky 
white people, for lack of a better word. I know Tony is Indian, but going really heavy on these slap-based moments. Mm-hmm. The ska element is strong. There's a lot of horns. But there's something about the production that, to me, doesn't really center Gwen the way maybe she deserves. And she's raw as a talent, too. Like, I think she learns how to manipulate her voice a lot better in the subsequent albums. Like, to me, No Doubt by No Doubt sounds like a band that got scooted into the studio and were like, all right, we've signed you. Let's go. To me, it doesn't quite synthesize, especially in the sense that at this time, the biggest band in America is Nirvana. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is really important. Yeah. When you look at No Doubt, I think you could maybe be like, what is this clown music? Yeah. Here's some (laughs) notes I wrote down when I was listening to this music. Could you describe Gwen's voice as, quote, bleeding? B-L-E-A-T-I-N-G. It has this (laughs) kind of warbly goat sound to it that's very grating over the course of numerous tracks. And I think she learns, as you said, how to smooth that out a little bit and then deploy it Mm -hmm. in ways that tap into that Betty Boopy thing that she does in more effective ways on their later music. And then the other thing about this music, and I think setting up the Nirvana thing is so important because like here you have this very serious rock band that's reinventing both the rock band and the sound of pop music at this moment into this extremely Mm. down, dour, heavy, depressive, serious rock music. And then you've got this. I mean, this is like kazoo clown car musical theater (laughs) there's a song a little something refreshing where they're just naming food and it ends with them burping (laughs) it's really silly and then the other thing that is interesting about this is that one thing that no doubt is and its best form is a rock band that really is just using the form of rock to send you some pretty fucking incredible hooky pop music. Yes. I would say that the best no doubt songs are defined by monstrous hooks. Yes. You think about Just a Girl or you think about Hella Good or Don't Speak Obviously. These are epic hooks that just smash you over the head that we remember to this day. These songs hold up. This album has almost no memorable hooks on it. Yeah. Except for maybe the one song I think people really remember from this record, which is the single Trapped in a Box, which is mm-hmm. this almost jazzy, like scatty little song. Trapped in a box. I wrote, this almost sounds like a whimsical joke. Yeah. It's almost ragtimey or something. Yeah. Do you remember anything about Trapped in a Box in particular? Yes. It's funny because I feel like they almost predict two... It's probably already seated at this point of the swing revival of the mid to late 90s, which when you think about it, it's like, wow, this is a silly time. Or you could argue maybe a little bit of a regressive time in that you're looking backward at a time when it's supposed to be the 90s, man. Right. We're on our third wave ska. We're on our third wave of feminism. Right. But let's harken back to, yeah, this ragtime, old timey, cabaret, Chicago, the musical type of (laughs) thing. (laughs) Yeah. Very Chicago, (laughs) the musical. Yeah. And then the only other thing 
thing that I would kind of throw in here about the first No Doubt album is there are a lot of interesting new wavy kind of elements going on, which I mm-hmm. do think kind of presage when they do sort of drop their rock band shtick and go for covering Talk Talk and a lot of things that happen on the third record. There are little seeds of the fact that they're willing to go for synthetic popness. Yeah. They're not so tied down by rockist ideals. So in a way, this record is silly, but in a way it also is important because it sets this band up as a group that has rock bona fides in many ways, but is willing to chuck that cred in the garbage can and go for the gusto with the pop stuff, I guess. Yeah, which is, it turns out to be the right mode of being into the mid to late 90s and into the 2000s is, I would argue, not taking yourself so seriously. Yeah, right. Because the artists who did take themselves very, very seriously, they ended up getting made fun of over time because you had like Creed, you know? Yes, 100%. 100%. You had people being like, I'm making life or death art and Gwen Stefani and No Doubt were never those people. Right. The only other thing I wanted to point out on the first album and kind of into Tragic Kingdom is positivity as a theme. Right. I feel like a lot of these songs are kind of like, get it together. Yeah. You can do it. Which again, not the right time. Love the world. Give peace a chance kind of vibes too. Yeah. Yeah. Global hippie type of vibes. At a time when everyone was like, no. Yeah. I hate that stuff. Yeah. Give war a chance. Yeah. But they were a optimistic band. Yes. And also, how do I say this in a way that isn't douchey? (laughs) For my last couple weeks spending a lot of time with Gwen Stefani, she does mine her life for moving songs, but in some ways she's not that profound. Yes. They do land on profundity. I mean, Don't Speak is a profound song in many ways, but a lot of No Doubt's music is reveling in, as you mentioned, a sort of goofy freewheeling, even when they're addressing gender politics or anything like that. There's this sense of simplicity about the whole thing that I think that Cupid doll kind of persona is both a commentary and a reflection of the real woman there in some ways. Yeah. And with the punk rock background, what is a punk song if not just a minute of someone screaming basically one theme over and over (laughs) so i feel like the songwriting if it comes from that tradition it's like we don't have to say that much but we just have to say what we want to say relatively clearly and then people will understand yes exactly welcome to pop music in general also yes (laughs) so this record is a gigantic flop i think it does incredibly poorly interscope basically is like actually no they don't drop them but they kind of lose interest in them they sort of set to work recording this entire second record that Interscope doesn't want to put out, basically. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about whatever you know about how we get from 1992 to 1995, where they end up actually releasing two albums, one independently, and then one that becomes one of the biggest record of the 1990s, the Beacon Street Collection. And then, of course, later that year, Tragic Kingdom, which comes out in Interscope. How do we get to that point? Obviously, we should touch on the fact that Eric ends up basically leaving the band during this period as well, which is really important. Yeah, it's funny. I also didn't realize until I was looking back at this time is that several of them were enrolled in college. (laughs) There was still almost like one foot out the door. Right. This is a part-time gig. Especially when the album flops so bad. It's like, okay, well, maybe this isn't what I want. Let me like have something as a backup. And so that's a tough energy to have. The road to pop stardom is littered with people who had signed to a major, had one album, it didn't do well, and they got dropped and were like in debt after their advance. A hundred percent. And we should also just highlight again, this band has now been operating for almost a decade by the time we get to 1995. Yeah. And has been through some shit. So yeah, obviously that energy is tough. They're going to battle with Interscope trying to put out a new album. Interscope is 
giving them nothing. Eric is kind of dipping in and out of the band in terms of involvement. And they bring on a producer, Matthew Wilder. Mm -hmm. Is he on the Beacon Street songs or not yet? Yeah, no, no, no. That's self-produced. And I think another thing that I just want to make sure that we say is that Eric is still the primary songwriter. So even though Gwen has become the lead singer in this early material, Eric is still writing a lot of these songs, which I think is really interesting when we get to what might be the shift on Tragic Kingdom, because obviously that record ends up becoming a lot about Gwen's personal backstory. But all the way through this Beacon Street music, Eric is the primary behind-the-scenes creative engine. So yeah, they make this album, basically, and they call it Beacon Street after the street on which they recorded the song. Mm -hmm. So they're bringing it all back home. And it ends up selling, I think, 100,000 copies. And they put it out independently. Yeah. They were literally just on the shelf. And the interest in this next collection of songs gets them where they need to go in order to record Tragic Kingdom. They stop being so ignored by their label. And I think the songs are better. I think whatever was happening in the rooms at that time... Maybe they were just under too much pressure or something with the first one and they needed to get back to basics or something. But there's more tunes, I find, on the Beacon Street collection. Agree. And Gwen Stefani kind of sounds more the way she does when she's kind of on her ascent. Yes, and I think another really important element here, because I completely agree, way thicker, better production. She sounds much more, as you said, like herself. And I think another really important thing that comes to fruition here is the stylistic diversity. The first record was, as we mentioned, just kind of this ska record, basically. Yeah. This has, I noticed on the song, By the Way, there's this Spanish guitar drama that sets the table for the way that Don't Speak is going to sound. There's still a lot of ska flourishes. There's a lot of really fast reggae rhythms on this record. There's funk. There's hard edge rock guitar. There's a lot of different experimentation here that goes on that I think is a really important part of this band. Mm-hmm. Again, though, I will tell you, still not punching those hooks. Yes. Let's just say the artistic leap from here to Tragic Kingdom is kind of a jaw dropper in some ways. And obviously that speaks to maybe Matthew Wilder coming into the fold. Maybe it is Gwen taking more of a central role in all of it. But I agree with you on your assessment of Beacon Street. And clearly it connected on a bigger level because as you mentioned, it sold 100,000 copies and that was enough for Interscope to be back interested in helping them make Tragic Kingdom. Yeah. Are you enjoying this episode? Because if you are, let me tell you, if you're only listening to the Pop Pantheon main feed, you're only getting half the story. Over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, we're now offering at least three, yes, three bonus episodes of the show per month. We're talking about all your favorite new albums like Jesse Ware's That Feels Good, digging into all the big singles of the month on our new music speed rounds, and of course, deep diving on classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope, Ariana Grande's Positions, Lady Gaga's Chromatica, and so much more with all of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All of this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So what are you doing? Go over to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode to sign up at the icon tier today.
How do we get to Tragic Kingdom? And do you know anything about how this album comes together? So Tragic Kingdom, the songwriting is marked by Gwen and Tony breaking up, which creates the subject matter for a lot of the songs. Mm -hmm. And obviously that could be a band killer. It's not, you know. What I understand of this breakup is that it seems like Gwen Stefani is basically just like, when are we going to get married? Oh, my God. When are we going to get married? Which goes back to our earlier conversation. Yeah, which is relatable. I feel like we're in a current stage where women are supposed to be like, I don't need to get married. It's a thing that happens to a lot of ladies where you're just like, I'm in a relationship with this man for several years. What the hell is going on? Yeah. Put up or shut up. And Tony wasn't down and we got some of the best breakup songs of all time. Yes. And then Matthew Wilder is brought in and it sounds like Eric Stefani is basically in the songwriting process for Tragic Kingdom, has friction with this guy, basically doesn't want to be produced, which I can understand that obviously in a creative sense. But if you're going to release albums on a major label, you kind of have to play ball in that way mm-hmm. because they are the people who decide whether your album comes out or not. And so he ends up leaving because of, could there be like an untold story of no doubt that we're not aware of? Definitely. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. But it sounds like he was not vibing with the idea of being produced by an outside person. And he ends up leaving for an animating job on The Simpsons. Yeah. Good for him. Good for him. Anyway, Eric's out, which watching back interviews with No Doubt from this time, I feel like everyone kind of had a stiff upper lip. But I imagine it was especially you think of sibling bands. You can't ever not be a sibling of someone. That's for life. Yeah. I imagine that was an incredibly painful split and departure. A hundred percent. It was his band and then it wasn't his band anymore. Well, perhaps though that is such an important key into unlocking the success of this music though, because I think maybe what it allows for is, as you mentioned, this record becoming about Gwen's personal life. Yes. The other songs you could have seen elements of what she was drawing on, I guess, but this record is very much about Gwen's experience as a person. I mean, let's talk about the first single, Just a Girl, which is like a mission statement for this band and for Gwen as a person. Can you talk to me about what this song sounds like and how this song presents Gwen to the world and as an attitude on record? Yeah, it's a perfect mid-90s feminist pop statement. It's an ironic song in that little old me, I'm just a girl, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) But laid on the background of this incredibly hardcore, hard-driving, goofy rock song. Take this pink ribbon off my It's funny that Just a Girl is the first big single because I think there's a lot of artists who the first big one is their signature song. Yeah. And I do feel like Just a Girl is Gwen Stefani's thing where you could hide behind the idea of, oh, I'm just a girl. I'm going to lean on my girl privileges. Yes. Or you could use it as a rageful anthem. I mean, in live performances, she would do like a call and response thing and she would have girls say, fuck you, I'm a girl. Yeah, right. (laughs) 
I'm so interested in the song because it's so slippery. What is it actually trying to say? Mm -hmm. What is a girl and what can she do? It's about the struggle, but it doesn't really offer a solution. Does that make sense? Mm, yes. Which I feel like it makes it a perfect pop song because it's not like a political protest song. Right. It kind of stands for itself in this weird way. It's why it's a classic. I think it's why it still works after all these years is because there's new ways in life to keep pointing mm. at girls and being like, you're just a girl. Yes. But it's about the frustration. It's not offering any solution other than being frustrated. Yes. It's a wonderful avenue, I think, for the persona and the voice that she's developed to this point. I mean, mm. this is the moment where she deploys that Cupid doll baby voice in a way to create commentary. It's almost like a piece of performance art in a way. You could picture her in drag as a little baby doll, kind of like, wow, wow, I'm just a girl. <laughs> it's got this feeling of taking all of the tropes about the American woman and what she's meant to be in the world and throwing them back in your face. And there's this really fun dichotomy in the way that it's recorded where in the verses she's sort of singing take this big ribbon off my eye <laughs> and then it kind of explodes into this combative menacing sounding chorus that has real punch and real friction to it and kind of feels explosive and responsive to that there's almost this deeply sarcastic element to the song and then this deeply cathartic element to it that I think really helps drive it and make it incredibly dynamic to listen to it's got a lot of different attitudes going on there's a sassiness there's sweetness there's sourness and yet it feels accessible it's like a version of 90s feminism that feels pop accessible. Yes. That's Gwen's thing. She's not that complex. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I think she's such a fascinating vehicle for this version of 90s pop feminism because she's espousing ideals and I think what you were talking about earlier about what is this actually saying about what it means to be a girl it's like hard to say but it's almost like it doesn't matter and mm -hmm. she's not Bob Dylan <laughs> she's not gonna give you this treatise she's not like Joni Mitchell it's about the attitude and I think that's such an important part of what makes Gwen Stefani such an important front person for this version of 90s pop feminism but I also think it's a really interesting tie back to what we were setting up at the beginning of this conversation which is here's how Gwen Stefani forms to so many people in their minds as this mm. emblem of pushing back on patriarchy in this way. And I think in some ways that also creates a lot of the internal conflict about who people see her as and who she sees herself as yeah. in the broader public consciousness in a way. And I think it is important, not that we need to compare all of our girlies, but I feel like the shadow self of Gwen Stefani is Alanis Morissette. Yes, 100%. Who puts out Jagged Little Pill the same year in 1995, it's a huge album. But if you think of the self-presentation, the stage presentation between those two women, Gwen Stefani is very athletic. She's doing high kicks. She's got perfect red lipstick, even though she's holding a microphone up to her face. She's channeling an incredibly femme energy throughout all of this. And you have Alanis Morissette. I remember my family's first computer came with this concert DVD. And I was like, mm -hmm. okay, how do we play this? And it had Alanis Morissette singing All I Really Want. <laughs> Some patience, a way to calm the angry 
and she just has this huge curtain of hair in front of her face that she's constantly swinging around. You can barely see her sometimes. At the same time that you had Gwen Stefani doing this high energy, sassy, but not angry music. Yeah. You had Alanis Morissette, who was really angry and talk about bleating. Yes. She was doing it too, just in a totally different way. Yeah. It makes sense that Gwen Stefani and No Doubt at this point hit as a sunnier outlook for pop music that things don't have to be so heavy and right it's referencing times of yore where you could drink a coke for a nickel and go swing dancing with your sweetheart totally <laughs> there was a little bit of that in there too and i kept thinking i think joe mapes also points this out in her retrospective review of the album on pitchfork where she talks about how just a girl also feels like a proto girl power yes this idea of pop feminism as capitalism as simplicity they're attitude pop songs really more than anything else and yet they felt at the time this girl is the baddest ass bitch in pop music mm -hmm. she's saying and doing stuff that other women topping the charts are just not doing it was like her and Alanis really did represent this specific energy it's just a really interesting moment in all of that I think we also should briefly discuss the music video because it also speaks to some stuff we've been pulling at here which is a the bindi of course yes. Gwen Stefani <laughs> is walking around in a bindi for god knows what reason maybe that's a nod to the relationship with Tony because he's Indian I don't really know I think I saw an interview where she said that she was inspired by Tony's mom wearing bindis and so oh interesting she just snatched it on up she just went for that she just went for it <laughs> that's the thing that was a choice her star yeah. quality and her fashion in this music video it's like equal parts punk and glamour yeah she's got this midriff bearing sweater vest on i just wrote she looks so kind yeah <laughs> she looks incredible in this music video the tiny tank top and the track pants People still dress like this. People are still dressing like this. It's timeless. She looks incredible. And the other thing that I just remember is watching her perform this song when I saw No Doubt numerous times during this time period. And she would do full-on push-ups during this song. She would get on the floor and just start doing push-ups, as you said, with the blonde hair and the red lipstick. She was a very entertaining live performer. Yeah. She really had that it factor on stage. All right, so what's happening on the rest of Tragic Kingdom? So this song peaks at number 23. It's a big breakthrough for them. Let's talk about the rest of the music on this record as it blows up into an absolute diamond-selling juggernaut album. Yeah, I believe half of the songs on this album were released as singles. Yes. <laughs> Just trying to squeeze every bit of blood out of the stone. But yes. Tragic Kingdom has at least six stone-cold great pop songs and then album cuts that are decent rock songs. Yes. I feel like what is so interesting about this album blowing up so huge and how they were never quite able to get under the shadow of their success, I think they ended up selling 16 million copies of this album and of course as I was saying to my husband when I was talking to him about preparing for this podcast 1995 just a great time to release an album because everyone's going to buy it and it's going to be on CD and it's going to cost $20 100% this was part of the major label record boom of the 90s they were just mm -hmm. printing money and you had to I mean for our younger listeners if you wanted to hear Just a Girl and maybe one other song on this record Don't Speak or whatever it was you were going out and you were spending $20 buying Tragic Kingdom yeah. no matter what. That was it. Which I wonder, do you think part of the reason sales were so good is that it was seen as a high value purchase rather than getting one hit and 11 stinkers? You were buying a densely packed album of pop songs. Just good economics. Yes. And I mean, also these albums, they just worked differently. We were talking about this in our Paula Abdul episode that came out recently with mm. Chris Malampi, who's a great chart analyst. He was just talking about how in this time period through the late 90s, you would release 
an album and they would work this shit for two years. If you found a hit, he was like, they would keep releasing singles until they could not squeeze this thing dry for another single. Whereas now I feel like yeah. pop stars release an album, they get one hit single and then they like move on from it. Think about all the pop albums that are huge this year. They all have one hit. Lizzo and Taylor, yeah. they have trouble landing on a second hit. But these albums got rung dry for two years. <laughs> I think the other thing that's really interesting, I would have to check with him about whether this is really true with this, but one interesting factoid about Tragic Kingdom as it blows up is that Don't Speak doesn't actually chart in the United States and neither does Spiderwebs or, excuse me, Mr. or Sunday Morning, even though they're big hits. Because what they would do is they would not release them as singles. So you weren't allowed to mm. chart on the singles chart until the record label released a single mm. of the song. But a strategy that these greedy ass record labels would do at the time would be not release them as singles. So even though the song was getting played on the radio and was like a huge smash and was number one on radio, they didn't actually chart because you had to go out and buy Tragic Kingdom in order to hear the song. So <laughs> it's a really interesting thing when you go look at the discography for this. Mm. The only song that charts is Just a Girl in the US. Not one other of these singles charts, which is insane because these songs were everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. It was crazy. All right. Let's go a little bit in order of singles. What's going on on the second single, Spiderwebs? Spiderwebs is, it's funny. I heard this song in the 90s as a child. Yes. And it is so ska. I feel like Spiderwebs is them finally synthesizing the ska part of themselves. Right. With the pop rock part of themselves. Mm -hmm. It all works with those giant blasting horns. And then the lyrics about screening your phone calls. <laughs> Part of me thinks that spiderwebs is like this abstraction. Mm. It's not just like, I'm screening my phone calls. It's like, no, I'm walking on the spiderwebs. Yes. You talk about the relative deepness or shallowness of <laughs> Gwen and Co's songwriting. I think this might be as deep as it gets. It might be as abstract as it gets, but that's okay. It's got that great sense of paranoia, but also it's just dripping in sarcasm. Yeah. She's dealing with creepy guys and disgusting kind of hetero romance dynamics, but she does it in this way where it's just dripping in irony. She's just kind of rolling her eyes at it. It's its own form of empowerment in that sense. Mm -hmm. Instead of expressing it in this really aggrieved way that Alanis might have approached it where like, you could tell how wounded she was by these guys, yeah. Gwen was almost the sonic representation of as if. Yeah. She's like a cartoon character in that way. It's like she's <laughs> impenetrable. Yes. A lot of really funny lyrics. I love the lyric, communication, a telephonic invasion, I'm planning my escape. <laughs> Iconic lyric. I just also wanted to point out that Nick Levine and Noisy described spiderwebs as Destiny's Child's bugaboo for a pre-cell phone era. Wow. Yep. Slay. <laughs> so Spiderwebs. And then, of course, the third single is the most iconic No Doubt song probably of all time, Don't Speak, which is a pretty radically different sounding No Doubt song. Yeah. Well, how would you describe Don't Speak? What's going on here? And why is this song such a sensation? I mean, it's just a perfect breakup ballad. I've written in my notes here when it was released, what was on the chart at this time was Love Fool. Mm. 
You Were Meant For Me by Jewel, Unbreak My Heart by Tony Braxton, and we have Don't Speak. Interesting. 1995, 1996 were so dramatic. Mm -hmm. To me, the secret history of American pop music is that we like ballads more than we like bops. Mm. It's the reason why like a My Heart Will Go On will always be more successful than a I Drove All Night. (laughs) I think people want to be sad. I think people want to be in their feelings. And something like a Don't Speak fits perfectly in that. I mean, my God, it has a nylon string guitar solo. That's crazy. Totally. And that's especially crazy for No Doubt when you look at their history and they basically are just blasting horns and playing high speed slap bass. And now we've got strings, we've got acoustic guitar. It's a more mature sound and it just lets people be dramatically sad, which is, I think, all we want in life sometimes. And this is obviously the ultimate Tony and Gwen breakup song. Yeah. We've been talking about the idea of California in this music. I kept thinking about the Eagles Hotel California when I listened to this <laughs> yes. song. It's basically an alternative rock power ballad, almost in the style of that song. I love this song and I find it incredibly anomalous in No Doubt's discography. Yeah. There's no other song that's really like this in their oeuvre. Yeah. I think it speaks to how inspiring this breakup was to Gwen. Because the thing about <laughs> Gwen is that she does kind of return to the same themes over and over again throughout both No Doubt's discography and her solo music. Mm -hmm. Her relationship with Gavin from Bush, which will develop between this and the next record, literally provides fodder for basically the rest of her solo career. But there was a very (laughs) particular inspiration that came from this Tony breakup that I think in some ways inspired her best songwriting and her best music. And something that she was never quite able to totally recapture again. I mean, the other songs punch in their own ways, but there's something genuine and earnestly affecting emotionally about this song. Yeah. While also retaining some of the sort of Cupid doll, baby doll voice and some of the irony, hush, hush, darling, don't tell me because it hurts. It does have that sarcastic bite still to it. But I think in some ways, this is one of the only earnest, no doubt songs, especially on this record anyway. Yeah, it really is. She's bleeding out up there. Yeah. I remember listening to the song when I was a kid and it's even, something kids can understand don't tell me because it hurts i'm like yeah what happened to this lady oh my god right and it's about a really interesting moment it's really about the moment where you stop fighting the breakup i think the central lyric of the song is it's all ending we gotta stop pretending who we are Mm It's this moment of sort of acceptance in a breakup, which is an interesting moment to write about, I think, because we often write about the anger of being broken up with or the heartbreak of being broken up with. This is really about the moment of surrender. I think Don't Speak is sort of saying, there's nowhere to go from here. Yeah. There's nothing else we can really do about this. And I think that that's part of the power of the song. It's capturing a very interesting moment in the cycle of a breakup. Mm-hmm. And then, as you mentioned, obviously, the video directed by Sophie Muller gets into the band yeah. dynamic where she is ascended to being this cultural front woman and... 
the other ones are upset with her about that in a sense. Yeah. First of all, that video is shot so beautifully. They all look so good. I'm like, did we forget how to light people at a certain right. point? Uh, yes. Have you seen Netflix lately? Yes, we have forgotten that. People are afraid of a little shadow here and there, but it looks like a painting. It looks incredible. Yeah. But yeah, the things that were happening in that video were happening in real life. The band was profiled in Spin in 1996. Only Gwen Stefani was on the cover. I think the guy who wrote the piece, who I, his name I can't forget, was saying the blondification of No Doubt is that mm. you end up with a front woman who seems far more interesting and compelling than anyone else. And so Debbie Harry is Blondie as opposed to a band called Blondie. Yeah. That thing was happening right there and they were acknowledging it. I don't know if it was healing or cleansing for them to do it, <laughs> but they certainly made a lot of money doing it. I just want justice for Tony. He is so handsome. Yeah, he is. He looks incredible at this time. Watching these videos back, I was just like, oh my God, this guy is so cute. Yeah, you can tell why she was into it. Yes, 100%. He could front a band and be a hunky front man. And a key songwriter, we should say, in a lot of these songs. And future collaborator who worked on a lot of Gwen Solo stuff. He's a clearly a very important, potent force in this music as well. Yeah. So Don't Speak is obviously a cultural sensation. I mean, if you were alive in 1996-97, you did not turn on the radio without <laughs> hearing this fucking song. It was everywhere. What do you want to say about the rest of this record? I mean, there's a couple more songs that are singles. There's Excuse Me, Mister, and Sunday Morning. Is there anything else that feels worth mentioning about this? I mean, you were mentioning that the singles are really where it's at here. Yeah. The only other one I wanted to highlight was Tragic Kingdom, the closer, which is, yeah. according to the songwriting credits, Eric Stefani's solo song. And it's about growing up in Anaheim and living in the shadow of Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> Which is important to mention. I should have said it sooner that that vibe in Anaheim of you have the happiest place on earth and then it's actually maybe not so happy after all. Right. And it's this kind of chaotic ska punk song that ends with just this cacophony of horns. There's moments where you can still hear like, the Eric Stefani musical theater moments. Yes. That's one of them for me. Yeah. And I even think you can hear that a little bit on Excuse Me, Mister. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of that cabaret ska going on there. I mean, the one that, that I just want to make sure we talk about is Sunday Morning, which is another song that just fucking rips. It's amazing. I love the opening lyrics, sappy, pathetic little me. That was the girl I used to be. Incredible, <laughs> incredible opening line. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Kim Wilde's Kids in America a little mm. bit. It has this Motown meets power punk vibe. I just love this song. It's great. <laughs> Another breakup song, another song about a shifting power dynamic throughout a breakup, the way that when you're sort of dealing with the dissolution of a relationship, who's on top and who's on bottom can sort of shift over time, I think is really interesting. And again, couldn't stop thinking about Tony and Gwen working on these songs about their breakup together. It's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. As we mentioned, Tragic Kingdom is a massive juggernaut blockbuster. It goes on to sell 16 million copies. It is an absolute sensation. As I can imagine, nobody fucking could have seen this coming. Yeah. This record's success must have been flooring to 
everybody involved. I mean, we've touched on this a little bit, but what do you think was the sort of ingredients of why this was such a cultural phenomenon? What about this music? What about Gwen? You talked a little bit about this, but is there anything that we could lay out about what made this music so fucking hugely resonant in this moment? I mean, I think besides just the pop songcraft finally came together in a way that it's hard to argue with any of the hooks or any of the melodies on the big singles. Yeah. It came at, I think, a perfect time in rock slash pop history in that we were coming out of grunge. We wanted something more energetic and lighter hearted. It was also pointed out in that in Helen Peterson piece that no doubt we're also down to work. Mm. Grunge was characterized by a lot of people shirking their music responsibilities in favor of (laughs) doing heroin. No doubt, not that band. They were kind of the perfect band for the transition from the dreary early 90s to one of my favorite eras of all time, which is just this optimism, forward thinking hope for the future it was a relatively chill time in america all things considered right if we can say that and i think they were the perfect sunny californian band for that to kind of shepherd us through and i think in terms of feminism she came at the perfect time or she maybe created the perfect time of a new version of what women can be you can have the punk rock attitude and still present yourself however you want to present yourself in gwen Mm -hmm. stefani's case kind of tomboy slash femme slash cultural appropriation. (laughs) (laughs) Nail her to the wall, Molly. That was perfect. Yeah, exactly. The Spice Girls come in and create that aesthetic for themselves too. It felt like a freer time where people were showing their midriffs, but they were also wearing sneakers. Mm -hmm. It seems quaint to think about it now, but you look at No Doubt as that band at that time and it was just like, I don't know, it felt good. You could feel good about being a girl or being a boy if that makes sense. Yes, and I love what you said also about them as a bridge between the self-seriousness of the rock movement of the early 90s and then almost the teen pop boom of the Spice Girls. Yeah. That's what No Doubt is. They're halfway between those two forces. And this moment in the timeline is literally halfway between those two things. They just happen to speak to that moment of transition in our attitude and vibe. Yeah. I remember living through this and it was like, they're just credible enough. It was cool to be into them, Mm -hmm. but yet they were so poppy and accessible at the same time. It was a potent, I think, almost accidental equilibrium that they were able to strike that really just hit the zeitgeist of what pop was at this moment. We were beyond Nirvana, but we weren't yet at the total frivolity, frothy, manufactured nature of the team pop boom. We were somewhere in the middle here, and she hit that spot. Yeah. The idea of authenticity in terms of being a band who writes your own songs was still an important cultural factor. Right. A hundred percent. And they had that. They had people producing, but they were still writing their own things, which I think is a crucial aspect is that they didn't give up that power to other people necessarily. Interestingly, though, and I think this is an important thing to say, I don't think that songwriting comes particularly easy to Gwen. I think that this is a struggle bus for her. I think that Tragic Kingdom was a bit of a lightning in a bottle moment that was inspired by this intense emotional experience. And so partially because of that, but partially because of some other factors, which I'm about to ask you about, five years elapsed between the blockbuster success of Tragic Kingdom and Return of Saturn. Music changes astronomically in this period. We now have entered the teen pop 
pop boom. We have Britney, we have Christina, we have Jessica and Mandy, Backstreet, that's what's happening. TRL is the primary force. The scope and sound of music and the way that we're consuming it. Can you talk about why beyond maybe the fact that Gwen is constantly struggling with writer's block, it seems like throughout her entire career, there's five years between these two albums. I mean, that's very uncommon to wait that long to follow up a big hit like this. Yeah, I think the first factor was that they were in touring hell after her tragic kingdom. Yeah, They basically toured for 27 months straight internationally. Wow. I do think looking back at their career and what went right and what went wrong is that they are instructive in that I would hope that no one who gets that big, not that anyone can get that big of an album again with the way record sales and streaming is, but if you have that large of an album, you can't tour for that long because you will be overworked to the extent that you will not even be able to produce good new songs. Yes. I'm sure they had fun. I'm sure it was great. It seems like they pride themselves on being a live band as their essential selves. I watched the Anaheim show, I think it was in 1997 from their Tragic Kingdom tour and they looked incredible. Mm -hmm. They're so tight. It was such an entertaining show. Unbelievable. But you do that for two plus years and it's just a grind. And so I think that was part of it. I'm guessing they were not able to write any good songs when they were Mm -hmm. grinding on the road like that. There's some label drama so originally Tragic Kingdom basically got sub-licensed by Interscope to Trauma Records, which mm-hmm. what a name for a record label. Like why? <laughs> Whatever. The 90s. Yeah, the 90s. Interscope then obviously took interest in No Doubt and I think they pulled some kind of string of being like, actually this is an Interscope release. We need to make all that money. Trauma sued them. Yeah. So there was some label drama that was distracting and taking away from what they were able to do. And Gwen I think already is being pulled into a slight solo mode Mm -hmm. she's contributing solo vocals for other people brian setzer orchestra prince even yeah and i think also another factor is that no doubt goes on tour with bush and she meets gavin rossdale and gwen is a romantic yes gwen is down to just get completely obsessed with someone and i think that's also a little bit of what happened here which ends up in some interesting songs but all of this combined is that the band is not in shooting out songs mode they are distracted tired tied up in some label bullshit and as you said the sound of pop changed so fast at this time that if anything the transition from tragic kingdom to return of saturn is them maybe not necessarily being culture creators anymore but trying to look around and being like okay wait what is everyone else doing what will make sense for us to do they got a little self-conscious if that makes sense and i think that comes through on the songwriting and the production and i think also that's so interesting is that they were still seeing themselves as a rock band which i think is the thing that makes the third record click in a way that this one didn't, which is that I feel like they approach this record by saying, okay, what does a rock band do on their second album? They get more serious, they get more personal, they get more bona fide. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that was sort of what they ultimately landed on. I heard that they recorded 95% of this record and then they were forced to basically go back and record the three songs that become the singles from this record. Classic record label being like, where's the single? (laughs) Where's the single, yeah. Literally the three songs that most people are going to remember from this record did not come till the very, very end of this process. Yeah. But that was my sense. I think the sort of key to Gwen Stefani's entire success beyond Tragic Kingdom has been this 
this awareness that she's not actually a rock front woman. That was my revelation, I think, from listening to the music this time through. The moment where Gwen stopped being concerned with what it meant that she fronted a rock band was the moment that her success kind of rocketed to the next level. Even though I do like a lot of Return of Saturn and think it's an interesting, almost anomalous Gwen Stefani and no doubt sound and album and thematic concern, it's interesting that this music didn't click because I don't think that people ultimately want Gwen as a serious rock front woman. They want her to be something else. Yeah. Anyway, so Return of Saturn drops in 2000. How would you describe Return of Saturn? In terms of the sound, so they brought Glenn Ballard in to produce. Right. Speaking of Alanis Morissette. Speaking of Alanis Morissette, which obviously it's the late 90s. You're like, all right, looking around, who can help me shepherd this into the world? Who has captured the imagination of America already? Glenn Ballard. However, to me, the production just doesn't feel very no doubt. Mm. I have in my notes the pots and pans clanging of it all. (laughs) I don't know why everyone in the late 90s in rock was obsessed with the sound where the drum sounds like you're banging on pots and pans. But it's not it. Because meanwhile, you have bubblegum pop coming right. in from the rear. Yeah. You got Swedish people doing crazy things with percussion and it sounds fresh and new. Right. No one wants to hear you banging on a pot. Totally. So <laughs> that's my main note about Return of Saturn. But the <laughs> lyrics, you really see Gwen again in I'm a rock star, but also I want a simple kind of life. Right. I hope my birth control fails. Maybe I just want to get married. Right. Which if you think about a feminist read of songwriting, you want to, in theory, be more than your boyfriends or more than your love interests. But I think Gwen Stefani is just out here being like, it's feminist to be romantic, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Which I agree with. I think it's a woman's prerogative to do whatever she wants. And in Gwen Stefani's case, it's just get obsessed with Gavin Rossdale. Right. And I think Gwen does something interesting here, like in thinking about her sort of perennial writer's block, that seems to be a strategy that she comes back to a lot, which is to write about why she can't write. Yeah. You were saying her obsession with Gavin becomes kind of a central force in her life. But I think a big part of that obsession is both the romance and then the fact that she's kind of insecure about him. Yeah. She's constantly insecure about this relationship and that transcends this album. She talks about that on the next record. She talks about that on Love Angel Music Baby. She talks about that on Sweet Escape. And it makes sense because he ended up cheating on her. I mean, it does add up at the end of the day. But in this music is a lot of ambivalence about her desire to continue being in this band. Obviously, you have Simple Kind of Life, which I think maybe is one of the greatest No Doubt songs ever, but Mm -hmm. it's essentially the song that sounds a lot like peak era R.E.M. in a way. Yes. A big symphonic rock ballad that is essentially just describing her conflict about the fact that she wants to be a trad wife. Yeah. She keeps saying, I'd like to be a mom. Sometimes I wish for a mistake, as you said about her birth control failing. You'd be a good dad. I just want simple things. Everything's too complicated. It's a really interesting and kind of revealing song, I think, about Gwen talking about how she's not even really sure she wants to be this ultra celebrity. And then there's a song, Marry Me, where she's like, I can't help that I like to be kissed and I wouldn't mind if my name changed to Mrs. And this is the one side, my conventional side, attraction to tradition, my vintage disposition, my sincere architecture. <laughs> I want to cook him dinner. You know what I mean? Oh, Literally. God. Oh, Gwen. Attraction to tradition, my vintage disposition. 
she's almost pushing back against the sort of mantle that Just a Girl had thrust upon her in this music. I feel like this album is almost combative against the way that we as the young fans of No Doubt wanted her to see her. Yeah. She is sort of coming back and saying, I'm not really what you thought I am. I think another fascinating part of this music is that Gwen Stefani is 31 years old when this album comes out. Mm -hmm. We're not dealing with a woman in her early 20s, which is when a lot of pop stars are having the brunt of their success. She's actually at a phase in her life where a lot of pop stars might reach on their fifth, sixth, seventh album. She's already here on her second album, dealing with a lot of mature concerns, I guess. Yes. And you have that against the backdrop of Britney Spears just being like, I'm still in high school. Yeah. That is really important to point out. It is hard for female pop stars over 30. It's hard to be when the culture values the baby doll thing, when culture values being young and fresh and I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. It's trad in some ways, but you could also look at it as a bit bold of Gwen Stefani to be even talking about the idea of just wanting to get married and have kids. A hundred percent. She's kind of ahead of her time of where we are currently with feminism is anything you want to do is feminism, whether it's go full girl boss or have a billion kids. Yeah. And I feel like at that time, it maybe didn't sound as fresh as it does now. Right. I love her self-awareness. There's a lyric on the song Comforting Lie. I am Jekyll. I am hot. She's very much fascinated by this duality. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I just want to make sure we touch on here is the lead single Ex-Girlfriend, which I do believe just fucking rips. Oh, it's so good. I love this song. What's happening on this record? To me, the song is the line. I always knew I'd end up your ex-girlfriend. Yeah, great line. That's amazing. I feel like that's a cryptic Facebook status that you would put up after a breakup or something. Totally. It's funny talking about this now with you seeing so clearly the line she hovers on between being sassy and ironic and sarcastic and underneath having these real painful feelings. Yeah. It is almost like other than don't speak, which I do think was just this raw tell it like it is emotion. Yeah. Her songwriting trick is bringing in sarcasm and bringing in sassiness as like an armor almost. Totally. Against actual feelings of pain and frustration. Absolutely. Pair that with a hard driving fast rock song and I'm I'm always in. Hell yeah. You know what I love about the lyric? The irony is there in the word. It's actually kind of always new. I'd end up your ex-girlfriend. Yes. It's yeah. that interesting sort of like and then there's also that great moment right before the chorus where she sort of puts the blame on herself and she goes, I should have thought of that before we kissed. Yeah. There's something, again, in that sort of sarcasm and irony of trying to sort of lift herself out of sort of a misery or a mm -hmm. feeling of betrayal or whatever it is. When I was listening to this song, I was like, this is on Olivia Rodrigo's fucking mood board. Totally, totally. You know she's been listening to this song. This is like <laughs> total pre-Paramore, Olivia Rodrigo vibes going on here. It's funny. I'm glad you brought up Olivia Rodrigo because I feel like Gwen Stefani and Olivia Rodrigo are very similar in that mm. their voices don't have any inherent edge to them right they don't have raspy voices if they get mad it kind of sounds like them being i'm really mad at you yeah but they use it to their <laughs> advantage like when stefani has that affect that she did the kind of betty boop thing yeah combined with hollering i feel like olivia rodrigo really channels the rage into this musical theater cabaret type of thing i think they're more similar vocally than you might originally think and they're both beautiful traditional looking and kind of mainstream big tent pop aspiring who are sort of delivering that through the guy 
rise of pop punk or rock music. They're not Courtney Love, yeah. who will obviously become a player in Gwen Stefani's narrative later on in her career. I think it's also worth noting the sort of change in presentation that Gwen comes across in these music videos. I mean, she dyes her hair this really intense pink color. How does Gwen look through this process that's like a little bit different than how she looked in Tragic Kingdom? She's definitely going with the general fashion trend as we go from late 90s into the early 2000s of hip hop inspired fashion becomes way more of a thing. She's going to be leaning further and further into that, let's be honest. Yeah, I pulled up one interview where she had pink braids that I was kind of like, Gwen, I don't know if these are... But at that time, I don't think people gave it a second thought. And I think if you asked her as if you asked her now, she would be like, it's not appropriation, it's appreciation. Well, I mean, there's a way in which you could frame the verses of ex-girlfriend as rap verses. Yes. I mean, she's essentially rapping these verses too. And there's a big Dr. Dre synth noise. I mean, there's definitely elements of hip hop that presage Gwen's broader appropriation of hip hop aesthetics that happened on this song. Yeah. And that's happening everywhere. I feel like just the charts are trending toward that as well as the aesthetics. Yeah. I don't know if we're going to talk about Let Me Blow Your Mind, her song with Eve. We can certainly if you feel you want to. <laughs> that's her as a solo artist. But I think that influence is definitely coming in where it's more about, I hate using the word urban because I feel right. like that's like a dog whistle. But of course, that's what people were saying at the time. Gwen Stefani has a new urban look. Yeah. And she's going where culture is going. That's what everyone is doing. That's how Destiny's Child and TLC and all these people are leading the way in terms of what that looks like. And she is right there. <laughs> right. And it speaks to the sort of gathering steam of the polyglot genre aesthetics that are going to define everything that happens after this with Gwen Stefani. The genres are breaking down. <laughs> it's funny because this album feels feels like the most genre confined no doubt album or Gwen Stefani project ever and I think that's yes. part of why as we're about to talk about it's not a huge success I mean this record is a big come down from Tragic Kingdom it sells a literal fraction I think it goes one time platinum or something like that compared to the 16 time platinum of Tragic Kingdom you know these videos get played on TRL I remember this era but this was not as culturally saturated I mean this is a fan favorite album that I think a lot of people like but it's interesting because this is the most straightforward genre album that I think Gwen Stefani's ever been involved in. And again, it kind of gets back to my earlier point, which is, is that what we want from Gwen? Even though there was a <laughs> yeah. lot of interesting songs on this record, and it really is a fascinating album, it's interesting because it seems like they also quickly realized that this is not what people wanted from them. And instead of taking five years to follow up Return of Saturn, they come back the next year with Rocksteady. Can you talk about how they pivot? What do they learn from the experience of Return of Saturn that they remedy with Rocksteady. This is such a classic music industry trajectory where you've got your huge, not a debut, but huge introduction to the public, disappointing follow-up, and then the, yeah. let's just party and have some fun. Well, it must be freeing in a way. It's like, yeah, well, we kind of fudged it a little bit on the second, so what do we have to lose here in a way? Yes, which is a much better place to come from than... The pressure of following up a 16 times platinum album. Yeah, yeah. yeah. God, more artists should just be like, I'm putting out a next album and you know what it sucks don't listen to it let this flop and then i'll see you next year I want to have a comeback. Own that narrative. Yeah. Free idea for any pop stars out there. Yeah. But yeah, Rocksteady came from them going on tour for Return of Saturn and having parties in their dressing rooms after the show and listening to dance hall music, basically, and them being like, mm -hmm. this is fun. What if we did this professionally? And so it sounds like less writer's block than usual. And they called in the big guns. They called in 
producers that were hot. Not just one producer was shaping the whole thing. Right. They were kind of pick and choosing. So they had William Orbit, who was just coming off of the incredible Madonna album, Ray of Light. The Neptunes. The Neptunes. Rick Ocasek from The Cars. He basically just has them make Cars songs. And I'm like, yeah. cool. <laughs> Why yeah, not? Exactly. If you're with Rick Ocasek in the studio, yeah, make a No Doubt Cars song. Yeah. Nelly Hooper, of course, also another big Madonna and Bjork collaborator. I mean, it almost sounds like they came at this both in an underdog sense in that they weren't upholding the success of their last album because it wasn't as successful. But it just seemed like they were focusing more on having fun and really treating themselves like a pop band and not a rock band. Right. They ditched the sort of, we need to make a serious one producer self-written record that's deepening and expanding our rock bona fides. And they were like, yeah. we're going to like literally approach this like a fucking Britney Spears album. <laughs> yeah. It worked for them and it seemed to set a precedent. I'm hard pressed to think of another authentic self-songwriting rock band. I mean, I think of Maroon 5 is another California band who kind of had rustic roots who eventually just became a pop band. You think of Fall Out Boy and Panic at the Disco. There's just at a certain point where you become a pop band who plays rock music, not a rock band who plays pop music. A hundred percent. No doubt we're doing this before all these people were doing this. And honestly, you've got to hand it yes. to them. I really do appreciate that they just got that and allowed this to happen. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, this record is good. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed listening to this album. Let's talk about the lead single, maybe Hey Baby, and how that contrasts with maybe everything we were just talking about, Return of Saturn. <laughs> how does this almost reintroduce No Doubt once again a year later? They're fun. They're flirty. Yeah. They're just sipping on chamomile watching <laughs> Boys and Girls with the Sex Appeal. They're making unqualified party music yeah. that fits within where tastes are going, which is increasingly toward eclectic music, toward black music specifically. They thread the needle and they do it well because it seems like they bring on other people who really know what they're talking about. To me, they don't seem, even though this is essentially a dance hall-ish song, yeah. it doesn't feel like they're doing a costume quite in the same way that you could argue Gwen Stefani has been doing aesthetic costumes <laughs> because it sounds like what it's supposed to sound like right. and it's catchy and great. And how can you argue with a chorus of just, hey, baby, <laughs> hey, baby, hey. Yeah, girls say, boys say. Also, I mean, the chamomile line goes down in history. Oh my God. Yes. Also, apparently, deeper meaning to that that I discovered is that a lot of these songs, as you mentioned, were written about after parties that they were having on tour. Mm -hmm. And she was with Gavin at the time, so she wasn't able to really get into the party life. So she became this kind of observer of it because she was just kind of waiting to see him. So apparently the whole, I'm just sipping on chamomile, watching boys and girls and the sex, whatever. She's talking about the fact that she was kind of forced to be on the sidelines and watch the party more than actually engage in it. I never had realized that before. Mm -hmm. But I love how just intentionally stupid all these lyrics are. And I think the second single, Hella Good, which really, I mean, what an all-time slam. Oh, my God. This song is so fucking iconic. Produced by Nelly Hooper, written with the Neptunes. It sounds like fucking Billie Jean and Another One Bites the Dust and Like a Virgin. And it's got these big synthesizers and this huge explosive hook.
I love that the hook somehow manages to make the word hella not sound incredibly annoying. I mean, talk about the California slang of the whole thing, but hella is one of the most annoying slang words of all time, but it makes it sound cool. And just keep on dancing, being right there in the chorus, just literally saying this is an album and a song about fucking having a good time. There's no deeper concerns to this whole thing. You got me feeling hella good, so let's just keep on dancing. That's pretty much all you need to know about this. Yeah. The other thing that I could not stop thinking about, the Neptune's connection and the, the way that Gwen is kind of panting on the song. Oh, yeah. <sighs> is so I'm a slave for you. Oh, yeah. Thinking just about the Britney Spears to no doubt to Neptune's triangle here. There's this sort of concession to the fact that they're not that far off from Britney in this moment. Yes. Yeah. watch me. She's in the air. She's in the room. Yeah. Pointing out, let's just keep on dancing. Boys say, girls say, just these very basic get everyone on the dance floor and not think too hard about things vibe. Yeah. That I think just worked perfectly. Not stressing anyone out too much with personal problems, just being like, let's just have fun. And the music does not sound like a rock band. This sounds like music that is made on computers. Obviously, there is big guitars. You can hear the elements of the rock band, but this sounds like music that is made on a computer. Yeah. You really start to get the sense of what is the notion of this band? versus just this vehicle for Gwen Stefani to do her thing on various different tracks. I mean, even kind of the reggae dance hall group of underneath it all. I don't hear these songs and like think about No Doubt as a slamming rock band. I think about Gwen and Tony in the studio with these massive producers. Yeah. Once you get into the drum machine zone and you're like, were these people just twiddling their thumbs in the studio? I'm wondering. Yeah, or did they bring them in and let them play something and be like, yeah, we'll totally use that on the final. It'll be in there in the mix somewhere. <laughs> Classic rock band turned pop band once you yeah. bring in the artificial instrumentation. A hundred percent. It's over. It's over. You can really start to hear why this record is such a pivot point into Gwen's solo work. Mm-hmm. The connection between this and Love Angel Music Baby, this is almost a bridge album. Yeah. So Hey Baby goes number five, Hella Good goes top 20, Underneath It All goes number three, which just underneath it all, very sweet song. Really love that song. Yeah. Super sweet kind of teenage love song, which is another Gwen trope that she will return to a lot on Love Angel Music Baby, actually. I remember them at this time in music history being all over MTV, I think maybe winning some VMAs or something. They did it. One measure of success that I've pulled from John Taylor from Duran Duran wrote a memoir and I podcasted about it on my podcast. And he said, getting a hit in a different decade is the true measure of longevity. And that's what they did here. There was a chance that they could have sunk into the 90s as a 90s band. And this was them clawing into the 2000s and being like, we are still relevant. Totally. And we can still do what you want us to do, whatever that is. A hundred percent. And I think this was received very well. I remember this being in some ways one of the most impactful No Doubt moments. I mean, obviously Tragic Kingdom will always be the No Doubt record of record. But I do remember this record being very big in my life and these songs just being everywhere and the videos. Like, you remember the video for Hella Good where Gwen's on the fucking jet ski? Yes. So fierce. She was so fierce in this era. Even though mad cultural appropriation going on this time, we are in the West Indies quite often. Mm-hmm. But it's a very good album. I have to say, <laughs> if you're talking about No Doubt as like a singles band with some decent album tracks, 
tracks. I think you could make an argument that this is their most consistent and strongest album because even Tragic Kingdom, as you mentioned, there's some songs on there that you're like, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of it for the canonical No Doubt period. Of course, they released a Greatest Hits album in 2003, which has one of their biggest hits on it, which is their cover of Talk Talks, It's My Life, which I Mm -hmm. happen to fucking love. I think it's one of the best No Doubt songs. And I think the uh, canonical version of that song at this point. I would say the same. When I think of It's My Life, I think of Gwen singing it. Yeah, me too. Sorry, Talk Talk. Sorry, Talk Talk. Gwen obviously goes on to a humongous solo career, most specifically with 2004's Love Angel Music Baby, and of course her follow-up 2006's The Sweet Escape. And then the band comes back together in 2012 for a album called Push and Shove, which really is a pretty big letdown commercially, I think, for many people. Do you have feelings on this album? I had never really listened to it in full. It's so interesting because I was such a No Doubt person and I was such a Gwen solo person. And just by the time this album came out, I just remember being kind of disengaged a little bit from the whole thing, maybe after having some initial excitement. How did you feel about this album? Is there anything redemptive or interesting we should talk about about Push and Shove? I feel the same way that, honestly, I feel like I barely remember it coming out at all. I mean, I think for context there, what happened between Gwen Stefani releasing her solo albums and then them trying to get back in the studio is obviously this incredible era of 2008 to 2012. Gaga breaking, Katy Perry. Things changed so much again that it almost feels like a return of Saturn redux where it's like, where does No Doubt fit? Mm. And I re-listened to the album and it doesn't feel specific enough. Yeah, Rocksteady was great because it had this specific goal of making multicultural, multi-influence party music for the current pop landscape and this didn't feel like it was enough of anything in particular to really break through production wise songwriting wise and honestly it seemed like in reading about the production of it that they had writer's block again how do you have writer's block after basically not being a band for six years while Gwen Stefani has been doing her own thing I want to know about Gwen Stefani's therapy sessions I need to know what's going on (laughs) I think that's a pretty accurate read I actually do quite like Settle Down which almost sounds like a Santa Gold song or something like that to me Mm. I think it's cute I think the song Push and Shove is kind of epic. It's this half big time rock chorus, half dub dancehall reggae track. It's interesting, but too much on here is suffering from, I think, what happened with Again, I'm happy that you brought up Return of Saturn, which is like, they're trying again to kind of position themselves as like a mature and serious band. I can't get with no doubt in that moment. <laughs> it's just not what I need from them. There's big U2 arena rock guitars going on. I'm just kind of like, no. Yes, the U2 copy. I was like, what? Why is no doubt doing U2? Those don't need to cross over. No, they don't need to cross over. Yeah, so unfortunately, this album landed with a gigantic thud. I think sold something like 200,000 copies. Yeah. It really didn't go 
go anywhere. So that's kind of the story of No Doubt, a story that in some ways is about one album, but also about another album, but also is about setting up Gwen Stefani's solo career, but also one of the most, at least image-wise, influential bands. It's really enigmatic little story here. And a band that, I don't know, did they ever fully live up to their potential? That's one thing that I kept thinking about through this whole thing. Like, do we ever get the No Doubt album? We have Tragic Kingdom as the biggest commercial blockbuster, but it belies an album that's inconsistent in some ways. And then you got the sort of fun experimentation of Tragic Kingdom, and you got what it might have sounded like if they became a more serious band of Return of Saturn. But I kind of left this feeling like, for a band that had such a massive impact and was so huge to me growing up, I'm like, did No Doubt ever fully reach its potential? Is that a weird question? No, it's funny that you bring that up. I feel the same way in that, especially just that they came kind of off the ropes with Rocksteady and made that, that I'm just like, what else can they do? I feel like they're so talented as performers and live performers and synthesizers of aesthetics that I'm like, what else could you have tried? Because what I think was kind of magical about them is that if there was anyone who ever pointed at them and was like, you're inauthentic or you are betraying the genre that you came through or people who were rockist or whatever, I feel like they escaped those allegations. I feel like you don't really hear about a chorus of people being like, no doubt sold out or no doubt went back on what made them good. Yeah. They were always kind of slippery in that way. Yeah. They could work among a bunch of different genres and make it all work. And so I do feel like, could there be another secret No Doubt album that mm -hmm. brought in new influences or... I don't know, especially now I feel like they put out that album in 2012, which was, I think, beginning the long 2010s of Truly. relatively minimal and miserable pop music. <laughs> Not calling, you know, Lord Pure Heroine, for example, miserable. Lana Del Rey is coming to your house. Oh my God. Oh no. But things got a little soggier and a little slower and a little yes. less exuberant. And I feel like if they just waited out, they could have met the moment where it is now, where I would argue people want higher energy, back to dance music, back to the 90s. We talked about Chromatica before, obviously Beyonce's Renaissance. So yeah, I don't know. I wish they would kind of keep going, but as I'm sure you'll talk about in your Gwen solo episode, like that woman can't be tamed. No. Maybe she's never meant to be in a band. Yeah. What do you think is No Doubt's legacy? When we look back on them, it's 2023. It's been over 20 years since their peak of success. Is there notable ways that we see Gwen as the front woman of No Doubt and this band's legacy in pop? You know, to me, the question I'm always asking and answering, which is, is rock dead and my answer is always no right and i feel like no doubt and gwen stefani in no doubt were kind of proof of that that they came out of the ashes of grunge to really define what a pop rock band is and i think people are still trying to do that mm. maybe it's a weird analog but mona skin the sexy italian band <laughs> i almost see something of no doubt in them a band that gets together and they're high energy live and they kind of make their bones as live band obviously the italianness <laughs> of it all is a little bit, hey, but Gwen Stefani is an Italian-American. Of course. So to me, the legacy of No Doubt is that I still believe that we can always support on the charts and in just kind of popular culture, pop rock bands. Mm. I will never stop believing in guitar, drum, bass, and a cool chick front woman to break through. Who the next one is, I don't really know. It's funny if you can imagine what if Olivia Rodrigo started off in a band. Yeah, and then, 100%. <laughs> and then became became Olivia Rodrigo. I mean, in this economy, you got to support an entire band. You got to split your revenue four or five ways. Maybe we're never going to get a No Doubt again. Maybe people are going to be forging everything themselves, but I still believe in rock bands as pop bands. I love that.
All right, so let's talk about the Pop Pantheon. In thinking about the tiers of the Pop Pantheon, and we're just talking about No Doubt separate from the Gwen solo project, where do we see No Doubt ranking in the Pop Pantheon? I read your tier list and your descriptions, and I love it. I want to say they are in the superstars of yore. Yes. To me, they had Rocksteady bringing them into the next decade and not getting them stuck in the 90s. I feel like they had enough of an era that they were one of the defining bands of the mid 90s into the early 2000s could they have had maybe one more album the secret no doubt album that we're talking about Mm -hmm. sure that's where i see them based on what your tears are what are your thoughts i am right there with you a boring segment when we both agree but (laughs) we both have immaculate taste and perceptions of reality so i guess what are we gonna say what is the biggest fight that you've had oh so many oh my god a lot of the fights come across cultural sort of differences whenever we're dealing with an artist like a celine or shakira who is just different here than they are in other parts. That always is really complicated. And then also sometimes when guests are just huge personal fans of the person that we're talking about, which like when they're a little delusional, (laughs) no offense to everybody that's brilliant that comes on the show. Sometimes people just get a little bit like, yeah, X band that had like three hits in the eighties was so important and influential (laughs) that they belong in tier one. And I have to be like, respectfully, no. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, I agree. I mean, if we're just looking at the tier three A requirements, one to three albums and at least half a decade that spawned numerous hit singles, at least five to 10 genuine smash hits. I think that's squarely no doubt. Yeah. And I think a lot of those hits live on. Even if you didn't grow up with them, I feel like just a girl, don't speak hella good, hey baby, underneath it all, do transcend. People really know those songs. Yeah. At least one album that had a major impact with many hit songs, I'd say they had two of those. Mm -hmm. Defined or helped define a very specific moment or era, I think Absolutely. I mean, you think mid-90s, I think Gwen Stefani is one of the maybe 10 people that you'd put on the board of musicians that were iconic from that era. Still very well-known and meaningful to anyone who is prime age. Yes, of course. I think anybody that's in our age bracket, Molly, we have a shorthand <laughs> about No Doubt. They're that important. Yeah. Beefy Arsenal of hits they can still tour on, obviously. I think No Doubt could easily launch a tour and have a successful tour if they wanted to right now. Yeah. If they released an album today, it would be something most pop fans would be interested in hearing. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, I don't know what Push and Shove says about that, but whatever. <laughs> we know Gwen did have a Vegas residency. Yeah. I think that they fit this perfectly. Yeah. They're tier three. And yeah, I think that's a very nice place for a band that has such an enigmatic trajectory to fit yeah so happy for them is there an (laughs) underrated no doubt song something that we haven't discussed yet that you would like to send the show out on something you just want to highlight that people need to hear that isn't an obvious one I would send people out on 16 from Tragic Kingdom. Yeah. I also just have a soft spot for it because my friend put it on a mix CD that she made for Mm. me for my 16th birthday. Hello. Welcome back to the fucking era. Yeah. That speaks to the era. I am so millennial. Yes. (laughs) You and me both. Yeah. It is what it is. But yeah, it's just a perfect little ditty about what it feels like to be a teen. Mm. Never gets old in pop music. What it feels like to be a teen. (laughs) Never gets old. That's true. All right. So let's go out on 16. Molly, Mary, O'Brien, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me i had a blast me too that was fun yay (laughs) 
All right, there you have it. Pop Pantheon, no doubt, certified tier three superstars. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so much to the incredible Molly Mary O'Brien for being such a fabulous guest. Of course, to the amazing Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week. To uh, PJ Brunetti for his help editing this episode. Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get this podcast. We're on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ XIV on Twitter and Instagram. Merch is at poppantheonpod.com. Patreon is at patreon.com slash poppantheon. And until we meet again for next week's episode on Gwen Stefani, I hope you have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.